So why would Peter say that if, even if you are treated unfairly, even persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 3. Part of living as hope-filled people in a culture of despair is to understand even if we're treated unfairly, even if we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, we need to remember we are blessed. We pick it up in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So this kind of builds off the theology of verse 12, that ultimately God is sovereign, God is for the righteous, he will judge the evil. It's very much like Paul in Romans 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? The position Peter has taken is even in a hostile uh, culture, if you seek to follow the script, follow the commands, kind of follow the strategy that God has laid out, by and large, it will go well for you. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. The grammar there is kind of interesting. It basically reflects the idea that chances are, if you follow the script, even in a hostile crowd, it's probably going to go better for you. But there is this possibility that even following the script, seeking righteousness, that you end up suffering persecution or unfair treatment. But even then, you are blessed. Now, it gets confusing because there's a number of Greek words that are translated blessed in English. So, for example, this word is a completely different word than the word used in verse 9 when it was talking about blessing. This is the word that basically means to be happy. This is the exact same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It isn't kind of a surfacey, trivial happiness. It's more a sense of this deep, uh, joyful satisfaction that brings kind of a, a deep, soul-satisfying happiness. So even in the midst of the worst of circumstances, there is every reason to be happy. It's also helpful to understand he's not saying when the trouble is over. He's saying in the midst of it we can still be happy. So why does he say that? He goes on to quote from Isaiah chapter 8, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. So that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. So Isaiah is writing to uh, the southern part of Israel that's referred to as Judah. So by the time Isaiah's writing, the kingdom has been divided. It's Israel in the north, it's Judah in the south. Israel has already been conquered by the Assyrians and hauled away. 
the Babylonians have conquered the Assyrians and they're coming for Judah. God's going to allow this as a discipline on his people because of their rebellion and idolatry. It's a corrective uh, judgment on them. But what's being said in this verse is that there's always been a remnant. Even when Israel was at its worst, there was always a remnant of those who were faithful to God, those who were numbered among the righteous. And what that verse is saying is that remnant of righteous should not fear the same fear. That's literally what the text says. Nor should they be troubled or agitated or stirred up. Again, it reflects this core theology of verse 12, that God is sovereign, that God remembers his people. He's for the righteous. And even in the most difficult of circumstances, God will not forget his own righteous people. So Babylon will come. They will conquer Judah. They will haul them off. Life will get really hard, but God will not forget the remnant, and he will take care of them. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So again, remember, these people are aliens and strangers living in a foreign land, beginning to experience persecution. It's going to get dramatically worse. And yet in the midst of that, the one thing they can hold on to is God is sovereign and God is for the righteous. And we don't need to have the same fear as those who rebel against God But then he goes on, the next verse in Isaiah 8, it's kind of a paraphrase that Peter uses, but basically the verse in Isaiah says, the Lord Almighty is in control. Lord Almighty is the Hebrew that's a reference to the God who is the general over the armies of heaven. So Peter's kind of capturing that, saying, remember, that you have to set apart, sanctify in your heart. In the first century, heart was not primarily emotion. It was like intellect, emotions, and will. So what we talked about several weeks ago is putting our game face on. That's kind of the reflection here again. Put your game face on and remember that the Christ that is for you is the Christ that is the general over the armies of heaven. So the God that is righteous, that doesn't forget his people, is the God who commands the armies of heaven, and he's going to take care of you, and everything's going to be okay. The idea of the verse, then, is if we remember that, even in the worst of times, there is reason for hope, which then causes the people around us to wonder, What is with these people? That even in the worst of times, they seem to have hope. So they're going to ask the question, defend yourself. What is the basis by which you have hope in a culture of despair? What the verse is saying is your right behavior is going to bring that question. Just be ready to answer it. This verse has kind of been misunderstood over the years. 
that causes uh, Christians to think you have to have like your degree in apologetics and be able to respond to every objection that somebody might raise. It's helpful to remember there's lots of questions people ask where it's okay to say, I don't really know. I've become really good at that over the years. Nobody should be expected to be just this answer machine that shouldn't prevent you from just having meaningful conversations around the basis for the hope that is in you. What causes you to still have hope in the midst of a culture of despair? The answer is simply the message of the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is what I believe. And this is why I still have hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's basically what's being said there. One of the things I find helpful with this verse is it just reaffirms what we have been saying all along. And that is, if we choose to respond rightly, if we follow the script, if we do good, if we pursue flourishing, what the text is saying is that that is so counter to the culture. It's so odd compared to everyone else. It will raise the question. This becomes the platform from which we present the message of the gospel. But Peter says it should be done with gentleness and reverence or respect. It's really important to remember we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to persuade someone to Jesus. Those are two very different things. Winning an argument, winning a debate is all about I'm right and you're wrong, so there. And we have to be really careful that even though we see the contradictions and the hypocrisies and the inconsistencies of a secular worldview, the goal is not to beat them over the head with it so that we can say, I'm right, you're wrong. The goal is to present the conversation in such a way that they are persuaded to consider a relationship with Jesus. That's, that's the goal of the conversation, and Peter reminds us of that. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now I've mentioned that Peter kind of keeps recycling some of this discussion. It's not really a linear from one end to the other, like Paul in Romans keeps kind of cycling back to these major themes. So he's told us this before. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer for righteousness. When we do wrong, we suffer the natural consequences of that. There's no witness in that. Everybody looks at us and says, well, you had it coming. It's your own fault. But when we do right, even if we are slandered, even if we are verbally abused, if we are slandered or abused for the sake of righteousness, at least in the midst of that, there is still 
a testimony. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer for righteousness. Then in verse 18, for the third time, he cycles back that the, the fundamental theology behind this is this is what Jesus did for us. Before we're tempted to pull the unfair card, say, wait a minute, I shouldn't have to suffer for righteousness. He again reminds us, wait a minute, this is what Jesus did for you. And he's asking you to follow his example, to be a witness to others in a dark and hurting world. I do think it's interesting in verse 17 that he says, if God wills it, that you suffer for the sake of righteousness. There is this reminder that all of that comes through God's filter. I am God's child, and God is for me. But it may be necessary at times for me to go through difficult things, for me to suffer for righteousness, and for reasons probably only God will know, he does allow it. Maybe there's something in my own character that needs to be refined. Maybe there's an area where I need to grow, but perhaps it's also there are people around me that don't know Jesus. And the only way that the message is going to get their attention is if I go through unfair treatment and respond rightly in such a way that it gets their attention and they wonder, what is it about you that causes you to respond rightly? I find myself thinking if life is just kind of a crapshoot and it's kind of like a lottery and you get what you get, it makes it very hard to kind of endure suffering. I just got a bad ticket. But if I understand, actually it's all gone through God's grid and for strategic purposes for the sake of the gospel, he's going to allow this in my life, then I can accept that. If it's for the sake of the mission, I'm on board with that. And if that's necessary, then I need to respond rightly. And again, we're reminded that's what Jesus did for us. Verse 18, for Christ also. So the also is connecting with this unfair treatment idea. For Christ also died for sins. Why did Jesus die? He died for sins. Once for all. This once for all is not referencing once for all people. It's referencing once for all time. Contrary to the priests coming and offering sacrifices day after day, it, those were all shadows of Jesus' sacrifice once for all time for sin. Now, I do believe Jesus did die for all people, but I don't uh, believe that's what this text is referencing. He died once for all. Jesus uttered the word to telestai. It's a Greek word on the cross which was a banking term that simply meant paid in full. One time for sin. The just for the unjust. This is what we refer to as the substitutionary death of Jesus. Meaning he was just, he knew no sin. I am unjust. 
I am a sinner worthy of condemnation before a holy God. Therefore, the just died for sin, but it wasn't his sin. He had no sin. Whose sin did he die for? He died for my sin. Therefore, before I pull the unfair card, I need to remember the utter unfairness of the cross. The just died for the unjust. Why would he do that? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's actually technical priestly language, which referred to the priest bringing a sacrifice to the altar for God. So Jesus is the priest that brings us now to God, and we are acceptable because the just died for the unjust. So why did he do that? In order that sinful men and women might be acceptable before a holy God. Then he talks about being put to death. It came through his death and made alive in the spirit. That's not a reference to the fact that Jesus bodily died on the cross, but his spirit lived on. That would, the language would be something like continuing in the spirit. It is rather a reference to the resurrection. He, he died on the cross, was buried, but made alive. It's resurrection life. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he resurrected in his new resurrection body. What Paul would refer to as the prototype of the body we will have one day in the resurrection. There were differences with the body of Jesus when he rose that's described in the Gospels. So this is now in the spirit, in the spiritual, in the spirit's power, the spirit life. It's kind of this whole new body that is now the resurrected body of Christ. So all of that seems pretty straightforward. So starting then in verse 19, it gets super confusing. So I'm going to read it to you and then try to explain it. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now I have to tell you, this is one of the most confused, discussed verses in the New Testament. A lot of scholars think it is the most confusing verse in the New Testament. So I'll do my best to explain it, try and stay out of the weeds as much as possible, but none of us should be too dogmatic. There's a lot to this. There's a lot of confusion. It's hard to be real sure. So there's a, about three primary interpretations. One is that it's a reference to when Jesus died and before his resurrection, he went, descended into hell and did something there. Uh, you see that line in the Apostles' Creed. And the basis of that is they're interpreting the spirits now in prison as demonic spirits. That's a very difficult position to defend, in my opinion. 
There's really nothing in Peter that would indicate that. There's really no reason to take it that way. As a matter of fact, I think it's very difficult anywhere in the New Testament to find uh, biblical evidence for this concept that Jesus descended into hell. So that's probably the easiest one to say. It really has nothing to do with this discussion. The second one is in keeping with the idea that the spirits are demonic spirits, the belief is sometime after the resurrection of Jesus and before his ascension, he went to these spirits somewhere in prison and declared his victory over them. The big problem with that view is, again, it's totally inconsistent with what Peter's talking about. He's talking about people during the days of Noah that didn't listen to the message of repentance uh, and therefore experienced the judgment of that. So kind of this idea of demonic spirits in prison and Jesus doing that is like, well, that has nothing really to do with the conversation. So I'm going to tell you what I think it is uh, without getting too much into the detail here. So when he says, in which also in the spirit. So he's saying Jesus rose in this spiritual realm, this spiritual power. He's basically going to say this was the same Jesus who in his spirit before his incarnation, we call it the pre-incarnate Christ, actually was in Noah. When Noah preached to those who were disobedient to God and told them that judgment was coming. For 120 years, during the time that he was building the ark, Noah preached to a disobedient world that they needed to repent because judgment was coming. The text even says God patiently waited. People that read the story of the flood in Genesis 6 think, oh, God is so mean. And what they fail to realize is for 120 years, God put his judgment on hold and warned the people that there would be a cost to their disobedience. Judgment is coming. But the people refused to listen. Now think about how this correlates with these first readers who are experiencing persecution. They are a minority in this culture of despair. They're preaching a message of judgment and repentance, and no one will listen. They could easily have identified with Noah and his family. So the text is then saying, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, the remnant, were brought safely through the water. The language here is critical. Through the water is saying that judgment did come. This is a really important part of our own salvation. The message is not that the judgment was averted. It's not that the judgment never came. It's not that there was no condemnation. 
Actually, the judgment did come. It did rain. It did flood. That's why Noah and his family needed an ark, which represents their salvation. The earth was destroyed, but they came through the water, meaning they came through the judgment and they came out on the other side to a new world. It's kind of a rebirth. So the message is that those spirits, those people that disobeyed in the time of Noah are still at the time of Peter's writing and still at this time today as we read this, still in prison, awaiting final judgment because of their disobedience. But because Noah and his family accepted the salvation that God offers, they came through the judgment to a new life, which in essence goes back Why are we blessed? That's why we're blessed, because we're numbered among the remnant that will come through the judgment. You say, wow, that water, through the water language kind of sounds like baptism. Exactly, verse 21. Corresponding to that, so in a similar salvation picture, kind of this living metaphor, Baptism now saves you. To which we say, aha, I knew baptism is what saves you. There are some people that would say that. And if you take just that verse, actually just part of that verse, pull it completely out of context, set it all alone, it does seem to say that. But that's why you never interpret Scripture apart from its context. So three times already, Peter has told us that the basis of our salvation is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He just told us Jesus died for our sins, the just for the unjust, in order that he might offer us as sinful people before a holy God. So if you start at the beginning of Peter, which Peter would assume, and you get to this verse, you clearly understand that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that saves us. But just in case, for some reason, we get confused, he quickly clarifies his statement. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, which means forgiveness through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is the actual act itself doesn't do anything more than wash some dirt off. Now, one kind of side note that's worth uh, thinking about is most scholars agree that the mode of baptism for the early church was immersion. The kind of dipping, sprinkling thing came later. This text would affirm that. If all you were were sprinkled, the idea that that washes the dirt away makes no sense. 
The only way it makes sense is you're actually immersed in the water. It's a little bit more of a dramatic moment. But it also is capturing the theology that is the basis of our salvation, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So what he's saying is the act itself doesn't do anything more than just wash away some dirt. But we are identifying that the basis of our salvation is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is what is pictured. Just like the ark was a picture of the salvation to come, baptism is a picture of the salvation God offers. Paul's language in Romans chapter 6 is very close to this, but maybe a little bit more detailed. He says that when Jesus died, when we trust Christ as Savior, we identify with his death. We die with him. Again, it's really important to understand the core theology of our salvation is not that the wrath of God was averted. It was not. The wrath of God was poured out in its fullness. But rather than being poured out on me as the unjust, it was poured out on Christ, the just, who died in my place. Therefore, the full wrath of God was poured out on him. Therefore, when I trust Christ as Savior, I die in that death. I'm identified. He died my death. He took my wrath. He was buried, but he didn't stay buried. When we baptize someone, we don't push them to the bottom of the tank and hold them there. There is an understanding that they come back up, which is symbolic of the resurrection. Just like Noah went through the water, through the judgment to the other side, so we die with Christ, we're buried with Christ. Remember this in Romans, my old self died. How dead is the old boy? He's so dead, we buried him. But he didn't stay dead. I was resurrected in the resurrection of Christ to this new life in Christ. I came through the water, through the judgment, to the other side, which is now the new life that I have in Christ. Verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Very Ephesians 1-ish. Uh, Basically, the text is saying that uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sits over all powers, angels, demons, authorities, governments, everything is in subjection under him. The idea is the one who died for me, the one who rose again, the one who presents me to a holy God as now righteous on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection is the one that sits supreme in the heavenlies. Therefore, if God is for me, who can be against me? If Jesus is the one that declares me righteous, 
No one can change that. No one can take that away from me. Nobody can diminish that. The idea that he sits supreme is the reminder that God's salvation is sure forever because the one who provides it sits in authority over all other powers in the universe. So this is basically where the argument goes. Even if I am treated unfairly, even if I suffer for righteousness, you could broaden that out no matter what it is you're going through that's hard in life. You are blessed. Because no matter what, we are reminded of this core theology in Peter, that for reasons none of us will ever understand, when we were lost in our sin with no hope, he chose us to receive grace and mercy. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ in order to obtain an inheritance that is so sure it's already reserved in heaven for you that will be fully realized at the return of Christ. And no matter what you go through, no matter what you face, no matter how difficult life may become, there's no one that can change that. There's no one that can diminish that. There's no one that can ever take that away. No matter what happens, these people, these first readers, are about to go through tremendous persecution. Some of them will die for their faith. Peter himself will be executed for his faith. But in the midst of all of that, what really matters is sure because it's rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. There is every reason for hope because what ultimately matters is settled in Christ. So here's another way to think about this. It's a sobering thing when Peter says, those people who in the days of Noah had 120 years to repent and chose not to, and they experienced judgment. Thousands of years later, while Peter is penning these words, they are bound up in prison awaiting final judgment. We're 2,000 years beyond when Peter said that. They're still bound up in judgment, in prison, awaiting final judgment. There's this kind of sobering reality that there are people today who have every opportunity to hear the message, to respond, and to experience salvation. But most will choose to reject it. And they will not come through the judgment. They will experience the wrath of God. What is so sobering about that is that 
could just as easily be you. Why is it that you're here this morning and you get the gospel? Why is it that you understand that Jesus died for you, the just for the unjust? You understand it, you believe it, you claim it, that's the basis of your hope. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're more clever. It's not because you're more humble. It's not because you somehow figured it out. It's because for reasons none of us will ever really understand, God in his grace and mercy chose you. So that rather than being somewhere this morning filled with emptiness, filled with despair, filled with struggling, wondering if there's even a reason to live one more day, rather than that being your story, you have every reason for hope. Why is that? It's only because of the grace and mercy of God. So even in the worst of circumstances, even when you go through the most difficult moments of life, you do have every reason to understand, no matter what, you are blessed. Our Father, we celebrate this magnificent truth this morning. There's so much about this we don't really understand. We just know that it's entirely possible that this morning we could be somewhere else desperately lost in our sin. In a world that feels so hopeless. But God, that's not our story. For some reason, you've opened up our eyes to the gospel. You've chosen us to be the recipients of this eternal message of salvation. God, remind us anew and afresh this morning. There is every reason for hope. We are indeed a blessed people. God, we thank you for this in Jesus' name.